Hello, hello. Thanks, Brandon. When I was in high school, uh, I played soccer for Liberty here, and like my sophomore or junior year, I'm a little hazy on which one it was exactly. We had we had two things going for us. One was that we had two foreign exchange students that were part of the team, uh, Alfredo and Arturo. Alfredo, uh, ironically enough, was Italian, and Arturo, it was really easy to remember, Arturo was, uh, he was from South America. The other thing we had uh, going for us, which was less of a positive, is that we had a slight drug problem on the team. And like midway through the season, two kids got kicked off the team uh, for smoking marijuana, there's no, there's no gentle way to say that, for smoking marijuana in the parking lot before practice. And so the next day, when we knew that, that a few of these guys had been kicked off the team, we showed up, and I'm sitting in a, in a car with Alfredo and Arturo and one other guy on the team, and we're talking about how weird it's going to be because we all know why they got kicked off, and, and one of the guys in the car said, yeah, the, the drug thing's going to be like the elephant in the room. And Alfredo, like, snapped his head around, and he was like, Eddie Fat? And I was like, yeah, elephant? And, and he, was, he had no idea. He spoke really good English, but he didn't know what an elephant was exactly. And he couldn't figure out what room it was going to be in. <laughs> and where we were going to get to see and talk about the elephant that was in this room. And so we had to walk through exactly what that expression means. What does it mean, that this metaphor that, yeah, the drug problem is going to be the elephant in the room? You see, a metaphor is only as effective as you understand what's being compared. And that's kind of where we land on the salt and light passage. It's a, it's a Christian classic, if you will. If you step into a church and you, you ask someone what salt and light means biblically, they would say, oh, it's, you know, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But we actually only understand that. We can only apply it so far as we have a good grasp of what Jesus is comparing a disciple of Christ to. And so that is where we're headed this morning. But I want to, before we do that, I want to recap kind of where we've been in our Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, we started really with just two verses that Jesus brought his, uh, called his disciples in chapter four. In chapter five, he sits down on the side of this mountain and the disciples come to him and he opens his mouth and he teaches them. And what we talked about that first week is that the Sermon on the Mount is less of a law to be followed and more of a character to be developed. And then last week we looked at the Beatitudes and we saw that the foundation of salvation is humility before the Lord. Those are the two things that we've seen thus far. And last week, if, if you weren't here uh, and you missed that sermon, I, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that on our website because it really is the foundation of everything else that's going to come throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've got to be able to stand firmly upon what Jesus tells his disciples in the Beatitudes. We've got to understand and realize that we're poor in spirit, that we have nothing of our own spiritually to offer God, that we're totally bankrupt in that realm. And, and also that a disciple of, of Christ, a follower of Jesus, mourns over their sin. That the, their sin, somebody else's sin, just the presence of sin in the world causes us to grieve. And because of that, because we know we've got nothing to give and because we're mourning over sin, we're silent before the Lord. That's what, it, that's what meek means. That we would just stand before the Lord silent in our guilt and offer no justification or no uh, defense for ourselves. 
And, and those three things lead us to this place of hungering and thirsting for righteousness and realizing that we cannot present that on our own, that of our own accord, we are nowhere near perfect moral conformity to the character of God. We fall so woefully short of that. But as a follower of Jesus, we realize that there is someone who can do that for us, and it's Jesus Christ. And if we put our faith in his work on the cross on our behalf, then we will be satisfied. We will be filled with his perfect moral conformity to the character of God. And so from that, we're merciful. We don't do mercy. We don't just act like out of mercy. Sometimes we are merciful. There's been this fundamental change in who we are because we've seen and we've experienced such mercy from God, thanks to the work of Christ, that we become merciful to other people. That's just who we are. It's our natural bent. We've now got a pure and a holy heart instead of a broken and and dark, sinful heart. We are peacemakers. Last week, we talked about the fact that one of the reasons why the Great Commission is so daunting and is so difficult is because we look at it as something that we've got to do. We've got to just like muster up the courage or the, the energy or whatever the case might be to go and make disciples of all nations. When Jesus says, if you're a follower of mine, then you are a peacemaker. It's not something you've got to build up the effort to do. It's just who you are. You bring peace to people. You bring peace between broken, sinful humanity and a holy and righteous God. And because of who we are, we're going to stand out a little bit. And we might be persecuted. But we can rejoice in that. There can be joy in that. Because we know the end. We know that we're going to spend eternity with the Lord. And so we need to be able to stand on that as we go forward. In fact, Jesus, in this next passage on salt and light, the next four verses in Matthew chapter 5, he's going to basically give a sermon illustration to those Beatitudes. It's not... Arturo and Alfredo, kind of funny, but he's going to paint two pictures that help underline and underscore what it is that he's just talked about all throughout the Beatitudes, and he uses salt, and he uses light. And so before we, we really dive into that, I'm going to take a second, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to, we're going to work our, our method here that we're going to use throughout the series, which is what does it say, what does it mean, what should it look like? So let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Lord, thanks for your word. My prayer above anything else, is that if there's, if there's anyone in here this morning who has not come to the point where they realize that they're spiritually bankrupt before you, that they can offer nothing of their own that could ever bridge the gap between their sinfulness and your righteousness, God, that they would hunger and thirst for that and find it in Jesus. God, would your spirit in this place make that apparent to every person in this room who hears it? But would it not stop there, Lord? Would would who we are, because of the work of Christ on our behalf, have a ripple effect outside of this building? God, would who we are as disciples of Jesus have an impact in a broken and dark world around us? Lord, would you use your word this morning to impassion and embolden us not to manifest something that we aren't, not to do a list of things that seems overwhelming and exhausting, Lord, but just to be genuine, true followers of Jesus. God, would you come here this morning? Would you continue to do that work in my heart? Would you continue to do that work in us collectively as a church and individually as believers? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's what we're going to see this morning. By this these two metaphors of salt and light, we're going to see that because you are a follower of Jesus, because you are a disciple, then you are salt and you are light. 
Those are realities about the character, about the identity of a person who follows Jesus. And so I'm going to read uh, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up. We're going to pick this thing apart over the next few minutes. You're going to want to be able to follow along. So here it is. Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, so what does that mean? We're going to start with some generals about the whole passage, and then we're going to look at salt, and then we're going to look at light. So some generals. Like I said, this is a Christian classic, which is a great thing because we're all somewhat familiar with it. The unfortunate part of that is that we often read too fast through it, and we skip over some things that are sitting just right in front of us and and are very obvious. And so I want to point those out. The first is that Jesus is talking to you and only you. Remember, it's the disciples that have come to him, and he looks at them, and he says, you, nobody else, or not just a special class of followers. It's not just like super Christians that Jesus is going to compare this to. No, he's talking to everybody. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Look at the person next to you. Real quick. Caden Sturt, stop looking at me. Look at your brother. Okay. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. There is no other plan. The Great Commission was given to disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's given to followers. And there's no other recourse. There is no plan B. There is no backup step. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And you only. No one else is going to come and pick up this mantle and carry it. You are the only ones who have been made into this. By your character, that's who you are and nobody else can fill the void. The second piece of that is that you are I've already already said this probably 15 times from up here over the last two weeks, but we're talking about an identity. We're talking about a character. We're not talking about a list of things to do. Jesus says you and you only are. This is who you are. You are salt. You are light. It's not something you've got to roll out of bed and, and pump yourself up for. It's not something that you've got to write on a list of things to do and then check it off at the end of the day when you get done with it. No, he says, this is who you are. It's your very nature. Because you're poor in spirit, because you're meek, because you mourn, because you've been filled, because you're merciful, because you're pure in heart, because you're a peacemaker, because you're persecuted and you stand out a little bit, you are salt and you are light. There should be no getting out of it, no getting around it. It's just who you are by your very nature. The last thing that jumps off the page at us is that Jesus has the whole world in mind, which seems a little bit presumptuous. He's looking at 12 people, and there's a crowd standing there around, maybe a few thousand that are also listening in, but he's talking to his disciples, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. They're not just the salt of Jerusalem. They're not just the salt of Galilee. They're not just the salt of the Israelite people. They are the salt of the whole earth. They are the light of the whole world. 
which means that we've got to get a bigger vision for ourselves than just maybe the immediate people in our neighborhood or maybe just our family. We've got to have a much larger view of the world than that. Jesus says that if you are a follower of his, then you are the light of the entire world. Every person on the face of this planet that is living in darkness needs light. Every person on the face of this planet that's just living dull, dreary, broken lives, chasing after things that could never fulfill them, they need salt, and you are that. There's no backup plan. There's nobody else that's going to fill the void. You're it. Our influence shouldn't be confined to just some narrow circle somewhere, but we should have the whole world in view like Jesus does. We've got to get a huge vision in our head for what the impact of the gospel and the impact of what God wants to do in and through our lives. His, his work on the cross is universal. And the character of a disciple, the identity of a disciple, from the moment he ascended into heaven until the moment he descends back down to earth in the second coming, the the identity and character of a disciple is to drive that mission forward. Because you are salt and because you are light. So now let's, let's talk about salt. This is a little bit of a, uh, like a weighty metaphor uh, in fact, it's, it's somewhat loaded. Um, there are some scholars who think that this salt metaphor could have like 11 meanings, which I look at salt on the table, it's got one meaning for me, which is like to raise my blood pressure or cholesterol or whatever it does. But Jesus, Jesus uh, is making this metaphor, you're the salt of the earth, and if salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? I'm just going to point out three things. I don't think we need to cover 11. I think three are most readily apparent both to Jesus' followers and to us today. The first is that salt preserves. It preserves. In fact, that was its most common use in Jesus' day. They didn't have refrigeration or freezers or whatever the case might be. And so if you wanted to preserve your meat in, in the, the desert out there, you had to pack salt into it and press it down into the meat, and it would do this work of stopping the decay of that meat. The world is a broken place. You don't have to look very far in the Bible. You don't have to look very far around you to see that we're kind of on like a downward slide here in terms of morality and in terms of brokenness and sinfulness. It's not very long after Adam and Eve eat the fruit uh, that there's a murder that takes place. It's not very long after God cleanses the world via the flood and Noah steps out that he's got to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read the book of Judges or the lives of the kings, it's pretty obvious that we're just moving downhill. And God says, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are to act as a preservative. That by your very presence in the world, who you are, that there would be somewhat of a slowing effect of the brokenness and the deterioration of the world as it exists around you. That just your presence in the office place makes a difference. Your presence in your community makes a difference. Your presence in North Kansas City, Missouri makes a difference. And it slows down the brokenness and it slows down the deteriorating. I was on a run the other morning with these high school boys and one of them was about to launch into a story and the other one smacked him and said, the pastor's here. 
I'm not saying that I had some great slowing effect on the moral decay of America there, but they were at least aware of my presence. And it made them think twice about what they were going to share or what they were going to celebrate or laugh about. You're a preservative. You are salt. Just the very fact that you're present and you are who you are should slow down that brokenness. The second is that salt pronounces flavor. It pronounces flavor. I must admit that over the last six months or so, I've taken a liking to these cooking shows that Melody watches. They become very interesting to me. And there are some cardinal sins on those shows, some things you do not do. You don't overcook the meat, the protein. You don't call it meat on those shows. You don't overcook the protein. You also don't undersalt the protein. If you do those, you get, you get kicked off as soon as there's an opportunity. It's because there's no flavor if you undersalt. The Bible tells us that the reality of God is written into, it's woven into the creation all around us. That his, his very being is evident in everything that you can see when you step outside and everything that you experience as you interact with the world. And Jesus says, you are the salt of that. You should pronounce that flavor. You should be bringing out the fact that God is evident everywhere around us. You're the salt of the earth. Pronounce the flavor. The last thing that salt does is that it produces thirst. This is a byproduct of salt. You put it, if you oversalt the meat, you end up really thirsty and you need a giant glass of water there. It's our body's natural response. That's what we should be providing to the world around us. We should be providing thirst. Thirst for the Lord that when the kid on the run smacks his buddy next to him and says, hey, the pastor's here, that there would also be this intriguing thought in their mind of like, I wonder why he wouldn't be interested in the story. Now, I have no idea if that mental jump was made in his head, but that's the reality. If we are salt, that's what we should be doing. We should be preserving the world around us. We should be pronouncing the flavor of God and the reality of everything that we see and experience. And we should be producing thirst in people that they would have an experience with us as a believer of Jesus and they would want more. They would want to know Christ. They would want to understand who the Lord is. That's what it means to be salt. The next metaphor that Jesus gives is light. I want to just three things about light for us. Light expels darkness. You see, the two can't be present together at the same time in the same place. In fact, we understand one because the other exists. We understand what light is because darkness exists. We understand darkness because light exists. But they cannot coexist in the same place at the same time. And so if you are the light of the world, then when you go out, darkness should flee. Darkness should be expelled. When light is present, darkness is gone. It cannot be there. The second is that it exposes danger. Every morning when I wake up, uh, I do my best to not wake up my wife who's, uh, who doesn't need to wake up as early as I do. And so I pull out my cell phone, and I'm not even willing to flip the flashlight on because I'm worried that that'll be too bright. I just use the home screen because I don't want to trip over our dog. And so I walk around my bedroom like this, <laughs> making sure that she's not down there 
I'm trying to expose the danger. Where's the dog? It's going to hurt her. It's going to hurt me. And it's definitely going to wake up my wife if I trip on her. Not my wife, the dog. And so I walk around with my cell phone light on the ground like that so I can see. That's what light does. It exposes danger. So we've got to ask ourselves a question. Just by being a believer in Jesus Christ and living my life in contact with people who are not, do I expose the danger of sin to them? That's what we should do. That's who we are to be. That I understand my position before the Lord, how much I need him. Uh, He has filled me with righteousness. I mourn over the fact that there is sin in the world and the very presence of my life and the fact that I am a believer and I am a follower of Christ exposes that danger and reality to the world around me. We should be pointing out that there are eternal ramifications for sin and that that is a danger that no one should play with. And we should be pointing out that there are temporal consequences for sin. And that as those pop up, there are opportunities to talk about the reality of sin in the world. Expel darkness, expose danger, and the last is light extends outward. I tried to picture what it would be like if you flipped on a lamp in your house and it just lit up like this much space where the light bulb was. How odd that would be, but that's not how lights work. They expand outward. When you put light in one spot, it lights up a whole room. When you open up a window, light floods in. It extends out. It doesn't just light up itself. And Jesus makes that point by talking about a city on a hill. One commentary that I was reading said that uh, in those times, like a city like Jerusalem that's built up on these hills could have been seen from miles away. And they didn't even have electricity. They're just using torches or candlelight or whatever the case might be. And from miles away, you could see that city because it extends outward. And in the midst of extending outward, it also draws people in. Sometimes when I'm walking around my bedroom trying to expose the danger of my dog on the floor, her face bumps into the phone. Because she's intrigued. She's not asleep anymore. And she walks over, and the next thing I know, her nose goes straight into the face of my phone. Light extends outward, and it draws people in. We need to hold up that mirror right now and ask ourselves a question. Am I salt? Am I preserving the world around me? Am I pronouncing the flavor of God in the world? Am I producing thirst in people? And am I light? Am I expelling darkness and exposing danger? Am I extending outward? And so here's the point that I would want to make. If you hold up the mirror there and you examine yourself next to the truth of Scripture and the answer is no to any of those, the the issue is not to try harder. The issue is to back up to the Beatitudes and say, have I arrived in this place? where I understand who I am spiritually and my need for the Lord. Because the the issue isn't one of effort. The issue is one of being, of identity, of character. If you've been filled by the righteousness of Christ, thanks to his work, then you are salt and you are light and you can do nothing about it. And you attract attention. We're going to do a group project right now. And don't be like that person from your academic experiences who doesn't pull their weight in the group project, okay? Everybody needs to play along. 
I'm going to have them drop, just a second. I'm going to have them drop the lights all the way down. But before we do that, I want you to get your cell phone out. Pull your cell phone out. And wherever your flashlight app is, I want you to go to that. Everybody got it? All right, pull the lights down. All the way. All the way. Hold your cell phone light up. You should be able to see pretty well in the area around you. Leave your cell phone light up in the air. Raise the house lights back up. Your cell phone light's not doing much now. Am I correct? No, because it's light. Pull the lights down one more time. Leave your cell phone. I didn't tell you. Simon says. Come on. (laughs) I want us to kind of remember this image. This is who we are. We are the light of the world, filled with brokenness, filled with darkness, filled with sinfulness. By your very presence in it, who you've been filled with the righteousness of Christ, you are the light of the world. You cannot do anything else about it. It's just who you are. When you walk into a broken space, light comes in with you and it expels the darkness. You can pull the lights up. You can take your phones down. The whole time I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but think about Psalm 34, verse 8. It says this. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. My question for us as a church is this. Does the world around us, because of our very presence there, because of just who we are as followers of Jesus, does the world around us taste and see that the Lord is good? That's what it means to be salt and to be light. That by your very presence in a place, people can't help it. And they want more of it. We're a church that does a great job of gathering. And when we're together, there is fellowship and there's this caring and encouragement and it is fantastic. The relationships that exist within the the body of this church are incredible. I want us to be a church that scatters equally as well. That when we walk out of this place where it's all light and and the gospel shines and Jesus is lifted high and glorified, when we walk out of this place where none of those things are true, we just carry bright light. We carry the taste of the Lord. And that salt and light just goes with us and radiates outward, and that's who we are as a church. So that the world might taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not something you've got to manifest out of yourself. It's just who you are by your very nature of being a Christian. We're going to spend our last bit of time worshiping uh, together here. Um, my hope is this. My hope is that if you hold the mirror up to yourself and you don't see salt and you don't see light, my prayer is that you would spend the next few songs reflecting on the Beatitudes. Maybe you even sit there and read them one more time and, and genuinely ask yourself, have I put my faith in the Lord. And if not, I'm going to be over here and would love to talk to you. If you have already done that, I just hope that this time of worship is encouraging. I hope it's like a a pregame pep talk because we are going to go back out into a dark world and we should go out there as salt and as light because of our very nature as Christians. And so we draw together and we worship and we glorify the Lord and then we go out and we glorify and we worship the Lord. And it's no different out there 
than it is in here. Let's sing.